tapping into, you know, I, when I've coached real estate, people would talk about like, how do I begin doing this? And I'm like, well, you know, I've never done a deal before. Well, you're, you're 40 years old. What have you been doing for 20 years? Right? Well, I've been running a, you know, a fortune 500 company. Well, then you have experience or, you know, I've, if you're, let's say you're not running a fortune 500 company, but you've been in charge of distribution for your company. Well, you know how to manage processes, you know how to manage systems. So taking that concept and then applying it to your business or the business that you want to do, it's not like you're coming in with a blank slate. It's realizing the skill sets that you have and translating them into the real estate and making sure that you have a team around you that is good enough to support it. So here's the big question. Have you ever been so financially frustrated from years of poor financial decisions only to wonder why didn't they teach me in school anything about how to manage money? I've spent the last 20 years learning the secrets to how money really works and how to use it to get financially free on a goal to retire early. I've realized how much of an impact we could have on the world by teaching financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and a successful mindset. Join me as I interview some of the world's most successful business owners, coaches, and parents to get them to share their secrets on how you can not only learn, but teach these lessons to your kids to become financially free and impact your children's financial trajectory so they can avoid the frustration and go on to do great things. I'm Cody Laughlin, and this is the Money Talkers Podcast. Welcome back to Money Talkers with your host, Cody Laughlin. I have Scott Crone here with me today. Scott is the founder of Coda Management Group, uh, Coda Design and Build. He's also an author. He's been featured on NBC, on House, on uh, Ace Hardware, uh, Crate and Barrel, and uh, also is a uh, is a proud father of three kids and a happily married man. And uh, he's got some great things to talk about today. Uh, we're going to get into some subjects that uh, we haven't really covered in stars and self stories, but also really about the entrepreneurial spirit that's out there that he's teaching with his kids. And so I uh, want to welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. I'm really looking forward to this. Excellent, man. Well, hey, listen, I want to jump right in with you. So um, can you kind of tell me like how you got started doing um, in, in your background with Code of Management Group? Absolutely. Um, since we're going to be talking about entrepreneurship, um, my family on both sides. So my mother's side was fifth generation family business and my father's side was fourth generation family business. And, you know, growing up, I figured I, you know, living in the city where my parents' family business was, and my dad was the vice president of the business. You know, I was the next oldest male in line. I figured that I'd be going into the family business, which was die casting. And, you know, they showed up my senior year for parents' weekend at college and said, what are you planning on doing next year? And I said, well, I figured I'm going to be going into the family business. You know, it's, it's what everybody else has done. And they said, no, you're not. And I'm like, did I, you know, did I? <laughs> that, that interview didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, uh, did I not call enough? <laughs> and um, they said, we're selling the family business. And, um, you know, my dad said, we're probably selling it five years too late. And, you know, it was a tough time in die casting in, you know, the early 90s. And the competition from abroad was just in, too intense. And so, he got out of it and, you know, they encouraged me to pursue my, my dream of architecture where I was considering in high school and I chose 
you know, a, a school that didn't have architecture because um, I wasn't 100% convinced I was going to go into architecture. And so I began looking into that, and that's how I began pursuing a master's degree in architecture one month after graduating from college. So they, uh, they changed your narrative, huh? <laughs> they did. It's a funny how parents have that impact, right? <laughs> yeah. I think it's, uh, uh, you also mentioned something that like when you're selling the business, um, I think a lot of people don't realize that you can do that. You know, it's just a, such a small thing to think of as an entrepreneur, but like a lot of people don't realize that you can buy and sell businesses. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's actually pretty commonplace. Is that, um, did you, were you involved at all going through that? So did you get to see what the, what the processes were when you were involved with that? I was not involved. I was, I was in college when all that was being negotiated, but it was, I did know about it because ultimately yeah. on my mother's side, they have sold the family business as well, which is a printing company, 150 year old printing company in Denmark. Wow. And um, so what I found was very interesting is they sold the business, but then retained the asset. They retained the property and then they sold the property separately. And so there was, there was two different transactions and then how the, the, the income or the wealth that was generated off of both and how it was divided into the different trusts to make sure that from estate purposes, it was done properly to, to, you know, take advantage of the, the tax laws that were out there. That's a huge lesson. Um, and that's why I didn't want to glance over it too far, you know, um, because it's just, there's such a wealth building effect with building a business that I don't think when people start businesses that they always, that they realize that, you know, a lot of people go in like, Oh, I just want to make more money, but you don't really you're building an asset at the same time. It's like buying a house. And so when you went into architecture, um, what, what did you go into first? Like, uh, cause I know, I know where you ended up and I'm just curious if that was like your, your main goal going in or if somehow there was a, a pivot in there. there. There was a huge pivot. You know, my, my perception of architects was grossly skewed. You know, I, I had a friend, she's still a friend. So I have a friend that when we were in high school together, her father was an architect and he drove around a Ferrari and you know, I thought that was the lifestyle of architects. And, um, you know, when I was in beginning to think about architecture in college, I went and uh, did an interview at another firm. Well, at a firm, Skidmore Owens and Merrill, which is one of the largest firms in the country. And, you know, they were saying, oh, as an architect, you shouldn't expect to make a whole lot of money. And I'm like, really? Well, you know, my friend's dad does pretty well. And um, well, they said, who's that? And I said, it's Adrian Smith. And, you know, he was the, the lead design principal at SOM, Skidmore Owens and Merrill. And, you know, he's one of the top five architects in the world right now. And um, he's designed that tallest building in the world. And she goes, well, that's not common. <laughs> so, you know, it was, uh, you know, that was a wake up call. So when I was in. He's the LeBron of architecture. <laughs> exactly. He, he's, not, right? he's the LeBron. <laughs> And um, so when we were in school, the first semester, you know, we were talking about the roles of a developer, the role of an architect and the role of the GC. And I, I was awarded a TA ship where I got appointed to a teacher that owned a company that did all three. And so my second semester, I began embarking on my master's thesis, which was a 400 unit multifamily development that included condominiums, townhomes, and single families. That was his project. It was his real life project that he was having all of the students come up with. And so we were working on developing the concepts for his company in school, but then as a TA, it was, it was slave labor, right? I mean, it exactly. It was was because, labor, right? You know, he, um, and then he said, well, I want you guys, at, you know, as your, as the TA, I want you to work in my office. 
uh, for free because you're getting paid to be a TA. And I said, well, I'm getting, I, I only have 20 hours of TA ship. So after 20 hours, you have to pay me. So that was my first real estate negotiations. And um, so we, I was working from him from seven until 12 in his office. And then I would go to class from one until six in his class. And then I'd be going homework from seven until midnight. So basically from seven until midnight, I was working for him five days a week. Um, but because I was the only one who did an undergraduate that was not in architecture, I got involved on the development side. So I was involved in the contract negotiations. I was involved in the bank negotiations, um, the working with the condominium associations, setting up all that, working with buyers, change orders. So I really got the best of both worlds and that, that's how I got into development. Yeah, that's a, um, that's a big thing. I, I mean, I've, I've done real estate developments and so I realized that you know, the differences between the different pieces that are involved with it and they don't always see eye to eye. You know, I would oh, say absolutely. it's actually the, the, actually I would say the norm is they don't see eye to eye, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And so um, getting that experience, how, how did you, what, what transformed that for after that? Uh, what transformed it for? Well, what, what did you go to after, uh, now that you got into, you got into architecture, you got into building, you got into bank negotiations and finance side of it. Where did you go from there? So I worked for him for six years. So when I graduated, I continued working for him. So I would, that project did paying up, you at least? Yeah, he started paying me. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go through more negotiations. Um, and uh, I mean, that was a hundred million dollar project that I was working on. That's a big then, deal. I mean, that's, that's, then, that's a big project, 400 units. Yeah, it, it, it started when I was there and it was still going when I left. And I was also doing four or five other deals at the same time in his office. And I was running one of them by myself, which was a 40 unit, $25 million development. And I was the project manager of that. So I, I was, that was literally, there was the, me, the project architect and then the director of construction on site. The three of us ran that 40 unit condominium development. So I was either stupid enough or ignorant of, not sure which one felt that I knew everything. And then the ripe old age of 28 decided I could start my own from company and, and go out and become a developer and do a design build. And that's how I got into it. When was that? That was in 1998. 98. So our first project, we, uh, we bought a house for $300,000. We tore it down, spent 350 building a new one and then sold it for a million 50. Really? It worked, yeah. went well off the bat. That's good. It went well. <laughs> So what happened? How'd you get? So where, where did you go from doing uh, single family? Was that single families? It was single families. And so, I mean, we just, we, it was a single family and we were doing single families, but then we also started doing townhomes and condominiums and mixed use. And we were, it was growing through that period of time. And, and then, you know, 08, 09 came and the entire market crashed. And so everything moved into apartments. Yeah. And so, you know, my background being, in selling apartments basically, which is what a condominium is. Um, it was a natural transi trans transition to con apartments, but everybody was moving into apartments. That was the only thing that was lending was apartments. So the cap compression compression was just ridiculously low. And that's when I began looking at uh, self storage. What, what did it get down to? I'm just curious. Like what were, when you say the cap compression? I mean, I, people were trading things at three and four or 5%, yeah. you know, and they weren't, they weren't top of the market class A. Um, my cousin, he, he um, runs the hedge fund for in, in uh, the Seattle market and has like the Mason Union or something like that. And they were buying in cash a building in Chicago, an apartment building, three cap, all cash. And, and I'm like, 
you know, I'm like, where do you get any appreciation off that? And they're like, we're not, we're just looking at it strictly from a cash flow perspective. That's, you know, um, we need that yield. I'm seeing that now in markets. We've got six, six caps in like Jacksonville area and that kind of stuff down here in Florida. And like, I'm just looking at it going, man, it's crazy what's going on with the money that's going into uh, multifamily lending right now. Yeah. And that, that's why I sold off my multifamily portfolio. And that's yeah. why we're just focusing on the self-storage. And for me, it, it's an, it's a natural progression. So I've gone from, you know, we were selling condominiums for a million dollars. So now I, I went from condominiums to apartments and now I got apartments without toilets or tenants, which is, you know, a metal box, right? So it's the, it's the most basic version of it. So talk about why you went into that. You went into self-storage now, right? For almost uh, exclusively. Since 13. Yeah. 13 was when we did our first one. Um, it, it is incredibly more demographically driven than any other business model that I've seen in terms of real estate. It's, really? It's, it's a, we can predict very accurately what the market's going to do based upon typical spending habits. Um, there's a pattern of everybody in the United States and it's predictability. And so, you know, when we were building the hundred million dollar project, we didn't have a feasibility report. We didn't, it was sort of like the field of dream approach, you know, build it and they will come. But we didn't know, like, you know, we had a premonition that there was going to be all these empty nesters that wanted to move down and still live in the community. But did we know exactly that there was going to be at least 800 people that would want to do this? You know, that was a big risk and a big gamble with us. We, we know going into a marketplace, whether or not there's a market for our product. So how do you know that? Uh, we hire consultants. So there's, we, there's research on it in terms of uh, saturation levels. So we can look at the number of square feet of lockers per capita and you know, it's a supply and demand. And if we're below that supply demand intersection, then we know that there's a market for it. Does it have to do with population changes too? Or is, yes. that, is, it, is it really more the per capita? Just if there's not enough storage, like there's a certain number of um, self storage per a population. And then that, you got to kind of just align the sand and you know, under or below, or are you looking at population changes or? We're, we're looking at all those things, you yeah. know? So from the most basic simplistic concept of it is just, basically square foot per capita. But then we have to dig down and knowing, you know, is the market expanding, contracting? What's the medium income? What percentages are renters? Um, but it's, it's all down to a three mile radius, three to five mile radius. And so, you know, Florida, which is crazy, you know, and you might say, well, of course, I already know that I live here, but um, their saturation is nine while the rest of the country is seven. So why, Florida, Floridians are buying so much more self-storage. I don't know why, I, you know, but like the coast, the East coast down through Florida, Texas, California, they're, they're all around nine where the rest of the country is seven. So we're going into markets where the saturation is like two or three. Yeah. And so we know that there's good margins there. Huh? Yeah. I don't know why we have, I mean, I've been here most of my life, so uh, I don't know any different. I mean, we have a lot of self-storage stuff, but um I don't know if maybe it's because of people are, this is a relocation state. So very few people are from Florida, mm -hmm. you know? And so maybe they're just going from large houses up North into apartments and condos or whatever down here, and then just put a place to put their stuff. I don't know. Plus we got a lot of retirees. Our, yeah. our median age is, very, is much older than a lot of the country. So maybe they're just downsizing and putting their stuff away. Could be. <laughs> I'm not sure. But I, um, so when you go and you look into those kinds of things, like um, what, uh, what are some ways that people could get involved in that? So do you find it to be, do you find it to be more, more steady than uh, like other parts of commercial real estate? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, I, we, we did a whole webinar <laughs> podcast on this that, um, you know, I've seen the cycles within multifamily. I've seen the cycles within single family because I, I've lived it. You know, I've, I'm old enough. I, you know, starting to have the gray hair on the sides where I've been through four recessions. So I've, I've seen the patterns and see the negative downturn. So we went back and studied how self-storage responded during the last four recessions. And, you know, apparently we're not even going to be technically in a recession. We just had a down quarter and we're, the economy is technically has already rebounded. Um, to per, you know, it's two consecutive quarters of negative, negative downward trend. And we're apparently we're not going to hit the second quarter. So I was including that one originally, but in each of those cases, self storage dropped 1% and then rebounded the next year with up to 3% increase. So every, at every recession, it dropped slightly 1% and then rebounded to 3%. No other segment of, of real estate have I seen that pattern. You know, if, if it's yeah, I mean, one percent is you know, it's not good, but it's not it's not awful or anything. It's I'll not... take one percent <laughs> in any recession, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh eight, oh nine, I couldn't get a loan to do a single family home whatsoever. You know, uh, yeah, it's uh, I mean, it was I was I had a mortgage company and a real estate company then in South Florida, so <laughs> it was a tough market <laughs> and a construction company. So I was on the forefront of all that. <laughs> yeah, but um, so why do why do you think that is? Why do you think that it doesn't um that it doesn't drop? And we looked at that too. And my experience within real estate is inherently people don't like change. You know, we, we were, we were tearing down a barn. It was literally a barn that someone converted into a house. And, you know, the handrail was a, a piece of rope going up the stairs at the top of the stairs was the toilet. The original heating source for the, for the structure was a fireplace and we were tearing it down and, these old women would come up to me and yell at me, you know, while we're tearing it down that I was destroying the neighborhood because we were losing that housing stock. And I'm like, it's not a house. It's a barn. I'm tearing down a barn to build, you know, $1.5 million house. How, how am I destroying the neighborhood? Right. But inherently people resist change. They don't like change. And, you know, in a downward market, there's a lot of change. You could have death, you could have displacement, you could be in divorce. Um, you know, job situations are changing. And when people go through that, they don't want to give up what they have. It's already hard enough to, to move, to lose what you have, um, a death, you're, you're losing a loved one. And so it's a way of putting things on hold that I can, a cheap and expensive way, put things in, on hold, allow me to process it. And then when I'm in a better state, then I can process it or I can move things or I can change. Um, so I think that's one of the main reasons why self-storage does well in a recessionary market. We, we, we refer to it as recessionary resistant. It's not recessionary proof, but it's recessionary resistant. The second thing is it's, it's a lot more economical. So if I am downsizing, then I can rent something inexpensively to preserve my, my items, my goods. And then the other side is um, what we're seeing right now. I mean, we opened up the week before, you know, Pritzker here in Illinois shut down the state and we're now close to 30% occupied in six months. And we, half our clients are businesses and they need the extra space for inventory, especially in this time, you know, they, they gotta be able to you know, get stuff in and be able to hold inventory and move it. And so that's another option for you know, people in small businesses. Yeah, I didn't really think about that, but it's amazing that when I asked why the investment is you know, uh, recession resistant, as you said, that it's, the first reason is, is that it's emotional. 
mm-hmm. you know, and it's because you don't think of investments a lot of times that way. And, you know, I mean, people look at all these strictly on numbers, but the, the idea that I don't want to lose my stuff or I don't want to lose things. And it's like, you know, I'm not going to change that. I can hold on to my stuff and it gives you a sense of sati- or a security probably. Absolutely. But that's an odd thing to think of when you're talking about investments, right? Right. And it's, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's totally different than like a commercial office space, right? Yeah. There, there's no emotion in that. It's like yeah, business is gone. So yeah, you know, we're done. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I never, I never really thought of it that way. That's a, um, and so I want to ask you something about like what you do at Coda. Um, I looked on the, you know, through some deals that I saw on your website and those kind of things. And you have a lot of their, but like money raised or investment capital or those kinds of things. Like, how are you, how are you putting that together? Um, are you bringing in outside investors and then managing it? Or is it like, how, can you walk me through that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, we've, we've always had investors in, in every single deal. And it even began with the first one where we, you know, bought the house for $300,000. Um, you know, I, I was fortunate that I had three investors. Um, it was my father, my grandfather, and my uncle. And, you know, we, we raised $100,000. And this is a crazy sound. We were able to do that deal for a hundred grand. We had a hundred grand of equity. And um, I returned 90% rate of return to them. And they said, do it again and don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't want we don't anybody else in here. <laughs> that's, that's when I said, hmm, I think I need to expand my investor pool. <laughs> <laughs> and your fees probably, right? Yeah. And <laughs> like so, that. Remember, um, that, remember that interview you had with me coming out of college? Exactly. <laughs> I'm to pay for that, buddy. <laughs> Who's family business now? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> that's funny. And so, and so, um, so have you brought in more outside people now? Like, how have you, how have you approached that? I think, cause I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people, um, kind of love the idea, but don't know how, um, like where to start or how to, how to kind of approach if they have an investment opportunity that they want to put together with people, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the first step is obviously you, you got to seek legal counsel to make sure that you're doing it properly and right. So I, I would definitely encourage you to do that. Um, but it, it's tapping into, you know, I, when I've coached real estate, people would talk about like, how do I begin doing this? And I'm like, well, you know, I've never done a deal before. Well, you're, you're 40 years old. What have you been doing for 20 years? Right? Well, I've been running a, you know, a fortune 500 company. Well, then you have experience or, you know, I've, if you're, let's say you're not running a fortune 500 company, but you've been in charge of distribution for your company. Well, you know how to manage processes, you know how to manage systems. So taking that concept and then applying it to your business or the business that you want to do, it's not like you're coming in with a blank slate. It's realizing the skill sets that you have and translating them into the real estate and making sure that you have a team around you that is good enough to support it. Because I was 28, you know, everyone, I I looked like I was probably 15. Um, but you know, everyone's like, you're too young to be doing this. Well, I would rely upon my team, right? Well, I have, you know, this is so-and-so, this is my sales agent. This is our lender, you know, and it brings credibility to the table. So everything you gotta be doing, you gotta just look at what is your credibility pack and and a lot of that's your team. And then also your experience. So would you tell 28 year old Scott, if he were to come into your office right now that he was too young to do it? And would you have in, in, cause I know that you didn't listen at 28 and I had the same <laughs> similar experience at 24. 
but I'm curious if you would advise yourself to do it or not to do it from an outside point of view. I don't, I don't regret doing it. What I probably would have said is like, you need other people in your lives to help you show you the way. If you're going to do this, make sure you tap into that. And, and that was something that I, I tapped in later in life. You know, and we talked a little bit before about my mentor, Dr. Nito Cobain. And, you know, I, I, my first mentor was obviously my professor and I learned the business through him. I learned the operations through him. With, with Nito, what I've learned is more of how to expand and, and make my business sellable you know how to grow my business beyond smaller um local company into i mean now we're in the midwest so how how was i able to expand it and grow it and at 28 i would not know how to do that yeah there's there's just absolutely no way i would have known how to do that yeah i was fortunate enough not to know what i didn't know at the time and so I, (laughs) i made some made some massive mistakes along the way, but I took the shot, which I was always happy for because I learned what not to do. Absolutely. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I was, you know, uh, when I, way I look at that. And so you brought up, um, something we kind of touched on before we got on, which was, um, with Nito Cobain. Um, and, uh, tell me how you kind of got involved with him and a little bit about, uh, high point and what we kind of, um, just briefly went over. Well, I, I was coaching real estate and I was asked to go down to high point to hear him talk. Um, and he, you know, he was talking about a growth mindset and, and you know, how he was able to, I mean, in 12 years, they've added over a million square feet of campus. They've raised $2 billion in, in um, donations for the school and they utterly have transformed the school. And I consider it to be probably the most entrepreneurial school in the country. Um, Steve Wozniak's on staff. And um, for those of you who don't know him, but he's, he was the co-founder of Apple and they also have the founder of Netflix there. And so they do everything in the, at the school is designed to prepare the students to be an entrepreneur, to, to sell themselves in the in, in business well, realm. To put it in perspective, they have a steakhouse on campus, which the students can go to for the same price as the cafeteria once a week. And the whole concept of the steakhouse, it's a five-star steakhouse, is to prepare them for a job interview, prepare them so in the business world so that when they're in that setting, they know how to conduct themselves. They know how to behave and, and not to make a fool of themselves because they're going to take them and they're going to take the position as a school. We can't assume that the student's ever been to a steakhouse. We want to uh, make sure. I, I absolutely that, love that because like, I don't think like we talk, we, we teach business classes and giant business concepts, but we don't talk about how to interview. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And I think that's a fantastic, I'm just listening to that and I'm, my wheels are going crazy. Cause I'm like, man, I, I just think about all so many people I've interviewed where I've actually had to like stop them and be like, this is how you need to interview, you know, cause I want to help them. And I'm like, right. you're, you're just doing this really bad and wrong. Like, let me, I've been through thousands <laughs> of interviews where I've interviewed people, you know, I had 110 employees at one point. And so like you, if you're all over the place, you know, as well as I do, like some people come in and you're like, you just want to give them a restart button, you know? Right. Um, and I had that, I had that experience. Like I didn't, I got a job as a commercial banker and I was the youngest one around and like, I was, I really loved it. I thought I was doing great. You know, I had the salary and I was wearing suits and this lady came up to me and said, Hey, you know what? I had this massive mentor that I work for as a large company. He's looking for somebody like you. Right. And dumb as I was, the first thing on my mouth was, well, you know, what, what does it pay? Because, you know, I do really well as a banker. And I'm like, and she's like, you're not the person I thought you were and walked off. And I was like, 
what just happened? Like I've never interviewed for, I only interviewed for one job my entire life and I got it, which was a commercial banker, which I probably shouldn't have been hired in the first place. But I, you know, so I just, I love the practicality of that because I probably blew a massive opportunity, but that stuck in my head the rest of my life, you know? I'm telling you a lesson, right? Oh yeah. And, then, and as I put out later, as I'm putting out job, you know, uh, opportunities and asking for applications, I'd have people email me that all the time. Well, what's it pay? You know, and I'm like, you don't even have the job yet, you know? And so I think that we just don't, and it's not because they're bad people. They don't understand. They just never have been, no one's ever told them that because it's a practicality piece. And so do they, I know you, I think you mentioned your, you have two kids at uh, high point as well, right? I do. Do So, um, how, uh, are they, are they going to be into the entrepreneurial realm? Is that their goal? Well, we've always encouraged that, yeah. you know, and, and the reason why I'm pausing and hesitating is because of the fact that, you know, college is never growing and expanding realm of exploring what your really interests are. And so oh, yeah. I, everything I went that 90 we, different ways. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's probably why so, I'm an entrepreneur. So, cause we go 90 <laughs> different ways. And we, <laughs> so my, my daughter, you know, she went in wanting to be uh, a surgeon and, and then she went into medical research and she's already been published a couple of times from her research at high point, which wow. is an undergraduate. That's pretty incredible. But you know, she was able to do that and she came home uh, because they shut down over COVID over the spring and she became an EMT. Um, just to to help out and um, to do that. And she was actually, you know, transporting COVID patients around. Wow. And she she got to see a different side of the medical field um, that she didn't think that she would enjoy the, the human connection. That's why she decided that she wanted to go into research. So we're not really sure where she's going to go, how she, she's going to end up in the medical field. But as I told her, I said, you, when you go into medicine right now, it's an ever-changing field because it's all based upon billable time. You know, you're, you're, you're only can bill so much if you're a doctor. And so, you know, insurance is really killing the medical industry. So you got to look and say, you know, am I going to spend $250,000 becoming a doctor and then having all this debt and not being able to, you know, really survive. It's not this lucrative industry that it used to be. And so I said, you know, you need to be begin planning and preparing for that. And so she's gone into it with the mindset of how can I do this in a way that serves people, but also doesn't just put me in tremendous financial debt and, and you know, difficulty right off the bat. And so she's, she's cognizant of those ideas and concepts. My son is definitely an entrepreneur. He's, you know, when he was a little kid, he would literally take rocks from our backyard and then go and sell them in our front yard. And we're like, this is the only kid I know that could sell rocks. <laughs> so he, in his high school project, he bought a bag of Tootsie Rolls and for like $3 and he went around selling them for a dollar each. And then he had a teacher buy the entire bag for $25. And I'm like, <laughs> like does she not know that she can go to the CVS and buy a bag of Tootsie Rolls on her own. And you know, he, he, he's the salesperson. So he'll, he'll definitely be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, I, I've asked other people this, but uh, I know as entrepreneurs, a lot of times um, we see it in our kids. So I don't know if we're influencing it to them or if it's uh, a hereditary thing or we just recognize it, you know? What, what are your thoughts on, on that? Because as you saw them as a kid, like you were like, okay, he's going to hustle. <laughs> well, right? I mean, there, 
I, my kids would say I definitely ingrained it into them because when they were younger, that's when I was being mentored by Nito. And so he, he'd give me all his books and he was, he was also a public speaker and consultant. So he had all these audio. I mean, I have like 30 CDs from him. And so, you know, I'd be in the car listening and like, dude, we don't want to listen to Nito anymore. <laughs> so, you know, they, it was, you know, being dripped into their head, you know, subconsciously or consciously either way. And so, um, you know, they, they definitely, you know, and then, seeing me run my own business they they got it they, they got to see it firsthand so you were a money talker yeah yeah we yeah. definitely spoke and we also gave them specific tasks yeah. they had they had they had to have a job in the house and excuse me they got compensated for that too so they you know the form of um in the form of uh, an allowance but if they they had to do those tasks in order to get their allowance so whether it was cleaning toilets or mopping the floor or cutting the grass they all they all had a task that they had to do. And, you know, in where we live, that's not as common as people would think, but we made sure that our kids understood, knew how to work. And then when they would do a lemonade stand, we would make them buy the supplies. So yeah. they would understand income and expenses as opposed to just income. Yeah. Startup capital too, right? right. So that's, um, yeah, I've actually wrote a, um, I wrote a business plan template for kids with a bunch of different jobs that they can do. And a, and a big part of that, uh, the business planning, is to get to your startup capital needs so that you can present on a, an executive summary to your investor, which is typically your parents. But um, right. you know, but that that concept that you know, with my kids, we my my kids they get uh, my my daughter loves business stories for uh, for bedtime instead of <laughs> books and stuff. A lot of times she'll tell me business stories, so we go over margin and all that fun stuff. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I just I, I think that. I mean, it sounds like they're already on that trajectory and that I, I wish my, my goal is, I don't say I wish I, my goal is to help more parents just be open and talk about these things. Right. Because I know in my household, we talked about entrepreneurship and I went straight into being an entrepreneur, but I had zero personal finance conversations and I got just, I paid for it dearly, you know? And, um, I think that, you know, having these conversations with our kids, whether they want to be an entrepreneur or not, just in opening in concepts of, because it, it, it's going to affect, even if you're an employee, you're still basically in charge of your finances and you need to run your household that way. You'll be much more successful. Right. You know, and, and we make them do that now. I mean, they, they have a summer job and, you know, granted we pay for college and we're, we're paying for, you know, their living expenses there, but they have to manage the rest of their life. Yeah. You know, so if they want to do an activity, they got to make sure that they have enough money for the, the rest of the year to cover that, you know, and if, you know, they run into problems, if they, you know, have an accident with the car, you know, or who's going to pay the deductible, you know, so we want to make sure that they understand that it's just not an open-ended purse, but there's, you know, consequences to their action, both positive and negative. You know, the positive is, okay, you, you had a good job this summer, you made money. Now you have cash flow, right? Now you have savings. What are you going to do with those savings? What are you uh, tithing? Um, you know, or how much is spending and how much is just, you know, entertainment and those sorts of things. So we, we go over that with them. That's awesome. That's a, uh, that's such a good um, foundation. You know, you're a real estate guy, right? Good foundation, good bones. And then right. usually the, the results are good. Um, so when you were going through with this, with High Point and with Nito specifically and those kinds of things, what was a major takeaway for you? Would you have an aha? I, I was looking at my business entirely wrong. I was looking at it from um, 
an immediate cash flow perspective. Like how do I get clients as opposed to how do I build my business so that it, one, it can run without me. And then two, that I can sell it. Um, you know, and it's hard to, to really envision that as an architect because it's your, your jobs are project to project. You know, you're, you're yeah. or as a developer, you're like, well, I have this deal and then I'm done with the deal. So then what else do I have to sell? Right. But <clears throat> that was the first step in terms of like, okay, our, what assets, how can I begin building assets within the company and that the company is worth something? And so that's when we began looking at, you know, the portfolio and seeing, you know, what are the advantage of having the self-storage asset portfolio and, um, you know, what is that book worth? And then, you know, how we can monetize that. Yeah, that's a big concept, man, that you're putting assets into the company um and, and the type of projects that you're doing and so do you are you do you still bring in outside investment to make that go faster yeah i mean and, but we, what we're also doing is we're looking at ways in which we can enhance that investment for our investors so you know we're, when we're looking at to me that's the the art of the deal is structuring the capital stack so we're using historic tax credits to enhance our rate of return for our investors we, we've sold off assets like cell towers you know, we bought it at a 17 cap and then sell it at a three cap. So we took that money and rolled it into the next deal. Um, then we, we, opportunity zones is another way in which we're enhancing our investors rate of return. We've done uh, pace financing and we've done obviously cost segregation. So these are all different tools in which we look to enhance our, our investors rate of return. So for me, that is as much as the art of structuring a deal as it is just putting together the actual project itself. Yeah, that's a lot of factors. Um, are you seeing, uh, so you've had a significant influence from the opportunity zones? Yeah, I mean, we, we actually established and funded an opportunity fund prior to the regulations coming out. So it was enacted in December of 17. And by November of 18, we had already dispersed our first opportunity zone fund deal. That's great. And the, the regulations didn't come out until I think March or April the next year. <laughs> so we're, we're on our third deal right now with opportunity zones. Really? That's awesome. I think that, um, I think it was a very under, um, appreciated move, you know, that, that that's going to help enhance the um, community that it's going into. The, the person who wrote it, Steve Glickman, was actually under the Obama administration and he described it as the most powerful tax tool ever created because of the generational wealth that it would create by wiping out the capital gains tax. Um, Trump, I think, recognized that, you know, which is why he signed it into law, but it was the most bipartisan um, legislation done. I mean, it was, it was literally equally supported on both sides of the aisle. And, you know, a Democrat and a Republican both brought it to the floor in order to get it enacted. And so being I agree on, Being on the ground, is, do you have a similar opinion? That like, is you know, a powerful tool? tool? Yeah, that, I mean, sometimes you hear... You know, like right now we have the, they had Main Street lending facility that they put all this money into and they haven't written a sin, single loan, right? So it was like, oh, we give $400 billion to the phone employee, but they haven't written even a, a, not even a billion dollars out of it. No one's applying for it. No one knows how to. So like sometimes we come up with these big announcements and there is an actual um, execution, right? Yeah. So with you going into your third deal um, and you're, you're kind of like, I dealt with FEMA before, right? Sure. And, and, uh, I actually worked directly with them. And I, so I got to see the internal workings of FEMA. So I got a different opinion from when I used to hear <laughs> about FEMA to when I used to work inside of FEMA. 
And so our uh, work with FEMA. So what are you on the opportunities? Are you guys seeing it to be that a powerful, powerful tool like that that you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I mean, worst case scenario, you're deferring your capital gains tax. So if, if you do it for a year, two years, three years, you're at minimum deferring your tax. So that's people say, well, why is that? That's bad because you're not giving other people the money for the government to run it. But the reality is <clears throat> when you're investing in, in, a, in an area, when you're doing these things, you're creating more opportunities. So if I can deploy more capital to invest, to an, enhance an area, there's greater repercussions for that. So to me, it's like a simple, you know, if I'm taking on the risk, then I should be getting some reward. And that's a way of enhancing the reward. Each of the deals that we have done has been a good deal in of itself. We're not relying upon the opportunity zone to make it a good deal. It's a good deal standing on its own. So that part of it is, you know, why I think it's good. Now, from an ex execution point of view, you know, we don't see a whole lot of bureaucracy because we're just following the, the returns. So we're, we're showing our compliance, we're doing those things, but it's not heavily, it's not overly heavily administered like a FEMA or another organization because it, it doesn't have a whole lot of overhead. Yeah. So it's, it's an incredibly simple concept and the implementation of it is simple. Now, interestingly enough, Biden's talking about like, well, now we need to have the treasury to, this is off his website. So I'm not, I'm not interpreting. I literally read it off his website. He's like, we're going to have the treasury department monitor social impact and environmental impact. And I'm, I'm thinking like, how is the treasury one going to do that? And how are they qualified? I mean, they, they're, they're finance guys. They're not, how do you, how do you get they're probably the least emotionally <laughs> capable <laughs> <laughs> group of people to be like, yeah, we're going to have you be in charge of social stuff and be like the finance guys. Like really, have you met a finance guy? Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's funny. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how that it's not clear. They have not specified how that would play out, but that that's my, I mean, it's good that he's supporting opportunity zones, but the devil's in the detail in terms of working out. If, they, if it goes that much more in terms of regulations, then it, it's going to be, you know, it might make it a lot harder to implement it. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I was getting to when I was talking about with you with like female stuff. So it's like the more people and rules you put into something, it just gets bogged down and it becomes harder to deal with. It's kind of like the law of like why a small company can take on a big company a lot of times is because they don't have all the you know, all the inputs and stuff. And so if it's a new thing, when you talk about being a tax, all I'm thinking in my head is like, there's not a lot of people, it's just rules to it. You know, right. with FEMA, there was just ungodly amounts of, you know, people you had to go through to get anything signed off on or done. And so, um, well, that's great, man. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're, you're doing those things and, and, and trying to improve the opportunity zone areas that are out there. Um, and that, uh, you know, bringing the ideas that are coming from high point. Like I, I want to look into it just because I, I've just pulled it up and I'm looking at some of the people that are involved in the conversations with like Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell and Steve Wozniak. And it's just, I've never even, I didn't know anything about the school and, and Seth Godin, who I love his stuff. Um, he's says they're 14 time best-selling books. You know, it's a, it's a great, he's a great marketing mind. And so, um, I want to say thank you for coming on Money Talkers with me. Um, where is the best place that people can find out about what you're doing, Scott, that they can, uh, they can get more information or learn more about you? Well, great, a great site for our people to learn about what we're doing is just CODA, C-O-D-A-M-G, as in managementgroup.com. And we have a resource page there so they can see 
different things, opportunity zones, pace financing, all those sorts of things. And just for you, Cody, in your listeners, if, if anybody signs up at, on, that, on that site and says they want to talk about these concepts with us, um, we, will, we will do a free call with them. You know, we, we won't charge anybody anything. And, or if they want to review a self-storage deal or they had an idea about something like that, we'll be more than happy to talk about it with them. And we'll sign whatever non-disclosure, non-circumvents. We're not looking to steal anyone's deal. That's not the purpose. So, but it's a way of, for us to give back to you and, and to your listeners. So that would be the best way is coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com. Uh, thank you, man. That's a, uh, that's a great offer. And uh, I hope people come, can come through and, and, and learn more about that because, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, educating yourself um, and taking action. And so, um, you know, even if you're just learning about it, if you have no intention of doing it, once you learn about it, you might be kind of surprised. So that's usually where I found most of my opportunities in life is that just being willing to take that step and take that leap to go take some action and, and learn from people like yourself that have, that have done it and done it well. And so that's the best piece of advice I think you can give somebody is to get out there and find people like you've done with, uh, Mr. Cuban or Cubane and, uh, and, and just, you know, learn that even though you've been a successful business person, that there's always somebody out there that can mentor to you. So that's awesome, man. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Money Talkers with me, your host, Cody Laughlin. If you found this episode helpful in your pursuit of financial dominance, it really helps if you make sure to leave a five-star rating and share it with your friends or family members who could use good financial information and entrepreneurial success tips. I invite you to join the Money Talkers Community Facebook group. Open Facebook and search for Money Talkers to join today. Follow us on Instagram at The Money Talkers for inspirational mindset posts, encouragement, and investing tips. And remember, the one thing you can do to change your kids' financial future is to start talking about money with them because you are a money talker. <laughs>